The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Have you ever met a couple that is just so nice where you feel happy just because you've spent time with them? Because again, they are so nice. John and Carolyn Tarwacki were one of those couples. It was a third marriage for John and a first for Carolyn. But if you saw them together, you just knew it was meant to be. They were one of those couples, happy, laughing, musically inclined, well-known and well-liked in the small southwest Michigan community of Niles. John and Carolyn should have had decades together, many happy years of music and laughter, but it wasn't in the cards. They would die a few days before Valentine's Day, a few months shy of their third wedding anniversary because on the morning of February 5th, 2010, someone broke into their home and murdered John and Carolyn. John was a veteran, having served in the U.S. Navy from 1987 to 1990. He was a nuclear submarine engineer. His military service after he was injured, an injury that found him in a wheelchair for several years. John was born and raised in South Bend, Indiana, alongside his siblings, Sue. Kurt and Danielle. John was fun and funny. He sang karaoke, he had an aptitude for music, and he loved sports. He avidly followed the Fighting Irish of Notre Dame and the Chicago Bears and Cubs. John was a father. He had four children John, Tia, Zachary, and Jenna. His parents were Dolly and John. And for many years, John worked for Downtown South Bend a nonprofit organization that promotes businesses and the vibrancy of South Bend, Indiana. He also took on work at Quinlan and Fabish. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, so bear with me. Quinlan and Fabish was a music store and supplier of instruments for high school band and orchestra programs. Carolyn was born and raised in Niles, Michigan, the daughter of Jack and Sharon McKnight. Carolyn was a talented musician, and she played the euphonium. If you aren't familiar with the euphonium, it's a large brass instrument, similar to the tuba. I've seen it described as a tenor tuba. Carolyn worked closely with band students, including volunteering at her old high school with their music program. She was well-known to teachers, parents, and students in southwest Michigan. Carolyn worked hard to help students select the right instrument to make their experience with band and orchestra a success. It was their shared love of music that brought the couple together. John and Carolyn both worked at Quinlan and Fabish, and that's how they met. The happy couple was married at Hope Community Church in Niles, Michigan on July 7, 2007. They chose the date intentionally, triple sevens thinking it was good luck. But sadly, their luck wouldn't last. 
Friends, coworkers, and family described John and Carolyn's relationship as a loving partnership and said they were very happy together. The newlyweds shared their Niles home with a 200-pound mastiff named Wrigley, and Carolyn's teenage nephew lived with them as well. John and Carolyn's home was located at 979 Carberry Road. It was a two-bedroom, two-bath, single-story house with an attached garage and a large backyard. The yard was perfect for their pup. They'd brought Wrigley home when he was a puppy just a few months after their wedding. The couple had been married about two and a half years when the sun rose on Friday, February 5th, 2010. Carolyn woke early, which was normal for her. She checked her email and had a telephone conversation with her mom, Sharon. You see, Sharon was also an early riser, so a pre-dawn phone call was not unusual for the mother and daughter. It was just after 6 a.m. when Carolyn told her mom she had to go. It was time to get her nephew, the son of Carolyn's sister, who'd been staying with them, off to school. Sharon had no idea it would be the last time she would speak to her daughter. Carolyn's nephew, we'll call him Kyle, he was on the school bus as planned by 6.40 that morning, headed to the high school for what seemed like any other day of classes. By 9 a.m., their co-workers at Quinlan and Fabish were puzzled. There was no sign of John or Carolyn, and they hadn't called in to say they were sick or running late. Well, maybe they'd stopped at one of the schools on the way in. Maybe a teacher or student needed something but they didn't answer calls placed to their cell phones. By lunchtime, concern is growing, and a call is placed to John's dad. Had he heard anything? No. Well, could he pop by the house and check? John Tarwacki Sr. agreed that yes, he could do that, and he headed to Carberry Road to check in. In an interview given about a year after the murders, John's father spoke of being overwhelmed with dread on the ride over because in his gut, he knew something was wrong. John Tarwacki Sr. will testify that he entered the house and found his son laying face down in the hallway. He ran to him, finding that he was cold. He cried out for Carolyn and ran through the house looking for her. His daughter-in-law was in the living room. Her face battered, a gaping wound on her chest. Tarwacki began calling for Kyle, the nephew being raised by John and Carolyn a boy that he'd grown fond of and thought of as a grandson, but his yelling and searching did not reveal the boy's presence, and as shock rattled his system, he exited the house, gasping for breath and dialing 911. When something terrible happens, you frequently hear, the community was shocked by the murders. But you know what? It's true. Niles isn't used to violent crime, and they certainly aren't used to two average people with a dog and a job and regular church visits being attacked so viciously in their own home, and on a Friday morning, no less. When police and the medical examiner arrived, it appeared that the couple had been dead for only a few hours. A call is placed to the high school because someone needed to get to Kyle to make sure that he was safe and that he didn't hear about the murders from a fellow student. Kyle needed to be protected after the tragedy at his home that morning. And listeners, if we're being honest, law enforcement wanted to get a look at Kyle. He was, after all, the last person to see them alive that morning. 
Could he have murdered his aunt and her husband and then hopped the bus to school, sitting in class, eating lunch, hanging with friends, just cool as a cucumber? Well, it didn't take long for investigators to rule him out. Kyle was having a regular day at school because until he was called to the office and until detectives told him the news and watched his reaction, it was a regular day for him. And I don't know why he was living with John and Carolyn, but I suspect that he was safe with them and that his narrow escape from the brutality of what happened that day must have impacted him greatly. The murders happened Friday morning and the bodies were found Friday afternoon. Usually, weekends mean time off and relaxation, but there is no such thing for the team handling this case. They talked to neighbors and coworkers and friends of the couple. Who didn't like them? Who were they feuding with? No one. Did they owe money? Were they into drugs? Were they gambling? No, no, and no again. John and Carolyn were normal. They were regular people with a love of music and karaoke and sports. Just a couple of newlyweds in love, sharing their home with their nephew and their big doggo, a 200-pound English mastiff named Wrigley. The dog was, of course, named for Wrigley Field because Carolyn shared John's love of the Chicago Cubs. Police are curious about Wrigley, too. The big dog is intimidating, and he's known to be protective of Carolyn. When press inquired about the dog, investigators are tight-lipped. Now, as an aside, I want to touch briefly on another murder where there was a large and protective dog present. The 1977 death of Deb Polinsky in Ottawa County. Her German Shepherd dog was with her at the time of her murder, and it is believed that he did not attack her killer, nor did he make an attempt to protect Deb during the assault. I think the same thing happened here. There's this big, scary-looking dog in the house, but the scary-looking dog was not able to save his owners. After the murders, Wrigley went to live with Lori Von Koenig, the band director at Lakeshore High School in Stevensville. While he stayed with her, at least for a few weeks after the murders, their friends and family knew he was safe and looked after. Not surprisingly, it's a small town and people are talking about the case and they are speculating about the dog. There are rumors that Wrigley was locked in the bathroom when the bodies were found. Police said that it wasn't true, but they wouldn't elaborate on where Wrigley was at the time of the murders. And I think people assumed Wrigley would have scared off a stranger had someone entered the home and attacked Carolyn. But that's not what happened. So people started saying it must have been someone they knew because Wrigley would have gone on the offensive if it was a stranger. Again, we have a lot of speculation, and none of it is helpful. As police spend the weekend interviewing everyone and anyone with a connection to the couple, their families are making funeral arrangements. In a heart-tugging twist, the same musicians who performed during Carolyn and John's wedding in July of 2007, they volunteer to perform once again, this time at the couple's funeral. Police aren't saying a lot at this point. I think police believe they're going to wrap this case up quickly, but it's not going to happen that way. And looking back at the case 10 years later, knowing that the families and friends of John and Carolyn have to wait and investigators are going to have to dig and dig for information, 
it's a little bit heartbreaking. On Tuesday, February 9th, the papers report that police believe one killer was involved and that this killer used more than one weapon during the murders. Before the week is over, a double funeral is held. More than 500 people, including dozens of students that John and Carolyn worked with over the years, come and pay their respects. The procession from the funeral home to Silverbrook Cemetery is nearly 100 vehicles long. One week after the murders, law enforcement releases a sketch to the public. And this sketch shows a white male, aged 20 to 30, with brown hair, a medium build, and he's wearing a blue jacket or hoodie. Remember, it's February in Michigan, so it's cold. The killer was likely bundled up against the weather. Several people who lived on Carberry or drive the street each morning describe seeing a similar person to the sketch. At this point, South Bend Area Crime Stoppers puts up a $1,000 cash reward in the case. And if you're like me and thinking, wait a minute, South Bend, that's not in Michigan. Well, we're right. It's not. Now, this area, this little southwestern corner of Michigan and the north central piece of Indiana, it's known as Michiana because the areas are intertwined. The term Michiana applying to this community dates back to the 1930s. So with that bit of history in mind, coordinating through South Bend Crime Stoppers makes sense, even though the murder happened in another state. Investigators are not finding the information they need to bring the case to close, so their next move, they install a big flashing sign, like the ones you see on the sides of the road with traffic information. They put one of these up on Carberry Road because they're looking for witnesses who may have been in the area the morning of the murder. They are trying to drum up new leads in the case. On Valentine's Day, 2010, a news story in the South Bend Tribune about Wrigley John and Carolyn's dog. Well, that's the last coverage of this case for several days. A February 18th article revealed that while police had leads, they did not have a prime suspect. But in this February 18th article, they offer some tantalizing clues about the case. They say that the killer came through the backyard of the home, entering the rear door of the house. Also, that Carolyn sent emails at 5.45 that morning and we know she had a phone call with her mom early that day, and that she woke up Kyle and got him off to school on the bus. So this narrows the time frame of the killings. I'm a dog owner, and I'm wondering, was Carolyn up early? And she let Wrigley out into the backyard, but she didn't lock the door when he came in. Or she let him out and left the door unlocked while he was in the yard. And not locking the door allowed a killer to enter the home. And I'm not saying this with any kind of blame. I've done the same thing a hundred times myself. You let the dog out, you don't lock the door. And if you have a dog at home, you've probably done this as well. We are going to learn that Wrigley and the unlocked back door have a lot to do with how this case unfolds. By April of 2010, 90 days after the murders, police have exhausted all leads. The county prosecutor is still optimistic. And he says that he's putting his faith in Michigan State Police Detective Fabian Suarez. Suarez is a skilled and tireless investigator. They're going to let the detective work the evidence and follow up on the suspects surrounding the double homicide. 
During the summer of 2010, newspapers dutifully run Crime Stoppers features on the case, reminding the public that there is a reward, and if you know something, say something. Alas, the information that Suarez is seeking remains elusive. The person responsible for the killing of John and Carolyn remains free. On the one-year anniversary of the murders, the South Bend Tribune runs a front-page story about the case. The story includes a photo of the newlyweds and an interview with Carolyn's mother, Sharon McKnight. McKnight lived just two doors down from the scene of the crime, and I can't imagine losing my child in such a violent manner and having to see the crime scene every time I leave or return to my home. McKnight told the press that she spoke with Carolyn that morning, that Carolyn had a habit of waking early, and that was a trait she shared with her mother. Carolyn and Sharon ended their phone call around 6.15 because Carolyn had to get Kyle off to school. We know that Kyle is on the bus and on his way to school at 6.40 that morning. After the bodies were found, police went right to the school to interview Kyle. His anguish over the loss of his aunt and uncle appeared genuine. When police interviewed his teachers, they said Kyle was in school and acting appropriate and normal all morning. Police had quickly ruled him out as a suspect. The South Bend Tribune also interviewed John's father, John Sr., who told the paper that John and Carolyn were happy. They weren't into drugs, they didn't gamble, and Detective Sergeant Suarez confirmed this. John's father was frustrated by the lack of progress in the case. He said that his son and his daughter-in-law were good people, living nice lives, and this should not have happened to them. In this anniversary story in the Tribune, Suarez revealed more about the murders, that the killer brought a weapon with them, but they also used an item from the home in the attack. But he declined to provide specific details. He needed to reserve information for when they had a suspect. This move is designed to protect future prosecution of the case and prevent anyone from offering a false confession. Just days later, an erroneous post on social media has the community buzzing. Did police have someone in custody in the murders? And once again, Detective Suarez sets the record straight. On February 25th, he says, quote, no, there have been no arrests, nothing. He does tell the paper that they had performed 300 interviews and fielded 700 tips. He said that the double homicide of John and Carolyn was the most difficult case he'd seen in his more than 20 years of police work. And then, nothing. Another year goes by, making it two years since the newlyweds were slain in their home. The summer of 2012 turned to fall, the start of another school year. More students getting their instruments and discovering band, but without Carolyn to help them, without her presence and support for her former high school and the people who'd once been her teachers and became her friends. October 18th, 2012, more than two and a half years after the murders, a press conference is called an arrest, a long-awaited break in the case. Cass County Prosecutor Victor Fitz described the investigation into the Tarwacki case as relentless and intense. During the press conference, long-awaited details are revealed. The couple was beaten, stabbed, and shot to death. John, a Navy veteran and father of four, was shot twice and stabbed ten times. His wife, Carolyn, was also shot twice and she was stabbed four times. 
During the press conference, they reveal that the killer had beaten Carolyn around the face and head. The overkill in the case was unsettling, especially in light of the fact that there was no robbery. Nothing was stolen from the home. The killer, the man they'd sought for almost three years, was a 28-year-old named Keith Lentz. At the time of the murders, Lentz was staying in an apartment on Carberry with his mother. On the morning of the murders, his mother left for work at 5.30 a.m., and she woke up Lentz, who was asleep on the couch in the living room. She suggested he go sleep in her bed while she was at work. Apparently, rather than sleeping, he'd left the apartment on foot, making his way to John and Carolyn's home. While they believe they have the man thought to have murdered the Tarwackies in custody, it was not going to be a quick process. The first thing the court wanted was to have Lentz assessed. Was he fit to stand trial for the murders? The evaluation process took weeks, and it would be January of 2013 when the preliminary hearing was held. There was enough evidence to connect Lentz to the crimes, and it was determined that, yes, he is fit to stand trial. This case has primarily circumstantial evidence. There isn't much in the way of evidence connecting Lentz to the crime scene. During the preliminary hearing, a woman named Caressa Warner would testify that she was living with Lentz at a residence on Carberry Road in February of 2010. It appears that the two were romantically involved, and she ended their relationship in March of 2010 when she realized that police were looking at him in the murders. Carolyn's mother, Sharon McKnight, she testified that when she was cleaning out the house shared by John and Carolyn, this was in spring of 2010, she found a knife in the back of a spare freezer on the porch. She turned the knife over to investigators, and it was determined that the knife had blood from both John and Carolyn on it. And I'm curious about this knife. Was it in the freezer, or was it, like, tucked between the freezer and the wall of the house? And I am sure that investigators are kicking themselves for not finding the knife during their searches of the property. Because of how the knife was found, any DNA or fingerprints on the handle of the knife cannot be used as evidence because the weapon was not handled properly. For the defense, Lentz's attorney asked a very important question. Where's the evidence? Police have no prints, no DNA, nothing connecting Lentz to the crime except the testimony of two young women young women who had criminal records. His attorney reminded the court that the description of the perpetrator was a guy with brown hair and a medium build wearing a blue coat or hoodie. Lintz has reddish blonde hair. He's six foot three and he's very skinny. This doesn't match the description at all. And Lintz is known to not wear a coat even in the coldest weather. So over the protests of Lentz's attorney, the judge decides that, yes, there is enough here to bind Lentz over for trial. The prosecution's theory of the crime is that Lentz, possibly under the influence of methamphetamine, led himself into the house just before 7 a.m. that Friday morning where he attacked John and Carolyn. He left without taking anything and without leaving any trace of himself behind. As Lentz is bound over for trial, the judge reviews the schedule of Prosecutor Doug Baker, and a trial date is set for August of 2013. As August approaches, the prosecutor offers Lentz a deal, plead guilty to second-degree murder. This plea deal meant that instead of facing a life sentence, Lentz could someday be eligible for parole. 
but Lentz declines the offer and jury selection begins. In addition to finding people with no knowledge of the case, they need jurors who can serve for two weeks without significant hardship. It takes some time, but the jury is impaneled and the case is ready to be heard. During the trial, it is revealed that when Lentz was serving time in Tennessee on unrelated charges, he told his cellmate about the crime. Law enforcement offered the cellmate a deal, wear a wire and get Lentz to admit to the murders. Lentz told his cellmate that he was up early looking for houses to rob because of his drug habit. Lentz said that when he entered the yard of the home, he found the Tarwacky's dog, Wrigley. He wasn't afraid of Wrigley and led the dog back through the yard into the house. When he entered the home through the unlocked back door, he put the dog in a room and came face to face with Carolyn, who started screaming. John came running to her aid and Lentz stabbed him. Carolyn ran to the living room where he beat and stabbed her as well. Had Lentz stopped there, had he just stabbed them and left the home, John and Carolyn likely would have survived. But he returned to them and shot each of them twice, making sure they were dead. During the trial, several people testified that Lentz spoke about the murders to them. If he didn't speak specifically about killing two people, he would say things like he was anxious because he knew he left footprints in the yard. These witnesses who testified about his statements included Caressa Warner, Ryan Dilliard, Krista Meal, James Fagley, and Lentz's cellmate from Tennessee, Shane Zimmerman. Krista Meal testified that Lentz revealed he had killed two people in Michigan, but police only had his footprints. He hadn't left behind other evidence. This is significant because in the backyard, there were two sets of prints. One set from someone walking to the rear of the yard toward the back door, and then another set left by someone who was running from the back door across the yard away from the house. It's easy to infer that Lentz was telling Meal about his footprints being left behind in the yard of the Tarwacky home on the day of the murder. And think about it. The prints you leave while walking look very different in shape and spacing from prints left behind when running. During the trial, there's also testimony of a woman named Patricia. Patricia had testified at the preliminary hearing in January, and, according to a story in the South Bend Tribune, when she was called to the stand during the trial, Prosecutor Baker asked the judge to prohibit her being photographed or videotaped. Baker informed the court that in January, after her appearance at the hearing, a group of women went to Patricia's home and knocked on the door. When she answered, the women attacked her, calling her a snitch, and they started beating her, a beating so severe that two of her teeth were knocked out. While Patricia filed a police report about the assault, the police had not yet found the people responsible for the attack. As she had at the preliminary hearing, Patricia testified that in February of 2010, she was living with a cousin of Keith Lentz. And, a week after the murders, Lynch showed up at their home. He had two guns on him and was jittery and paranoid. She said that Lentz had a cast on his arm and that his hands were covered in scratches. Lentz told her, apropos of nothing, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. During this visit, Lentz also volunteered, quote, They just have footprints, not DNA. But when she asked what he was talking about, he wouldn't clarify. 
Patricia said that she didn't go to police at the time because of her relationship with Lince's cousin. She saw Keith as part of the family. She did admit that she went to police when she was charged with driving on a suspended license. This made it appear that she traded her testimony for having her record cleared. And whether or not that happened, whether or not there was a quid pro quo, I can't say. I think the most impactful testimony of the trial came from Shane Zimmerman. Zimmerman knew Lentz, and he had been incarcerated with him in Tennessee. He testified that Lentz told him that he blacked out the morning of the murders, and when he woke up later in the day, he had blood on his clothes. Zimmerman also told the court that Lentz expressed remorse for the killings. It appears that Keith Lentz thought the Tarwacky home was a meth house, and he let himself in early that morning hoping to score drugs or other valuables. Instead, he was met by the homeowners who he attacked. Lintz could have just run from the home, leaving by the back door, which is how he entered, or fleeing through the front door, but instead, he went on the offensive, resulting in the exceptionally violent murders of John and Carolyn. Testimony was presented during the trial where the term overkill is used, since both victims were stabbed and shot, and Carolyn was struck repeatedly in the face. If Lintz had just stabbed them and left, both John and Carolyn would have survived. But instead, he shot them, an exceptionally violent conclusion to what started out as a home invasion. While evidence tying Keith Lintz to the crime is primarily from his own words, things he said about his footprints, waking up with blood on his clothes and not knowing where it came from, and utterances made while incarcerated in Tennessee, it's enough for the jury. Keith Lentz is found guilty of two counts of first-degree murder, and when he had the chance to address the court at sentencing, he told the families that he was sorry for their loss, but he wasn't responsible for the murders. They had the wrong guy. Lentz did file an appeal in the case, but it was denied. And as of this writing, 35-year-old Keith Lentz is serving two life sentences at the Thumb Correctional Facility in Lapeer, Michigan. Normally, this is where I wrap up the episode. I tell you about my Twitter and the Facebook group and Patreon, and I'd remind you to visit our friends at BetterHelp and use code GONE for a special savings on your first month. Instead, there's something else I need to share with you, something I think you should know about Keith Lentz. Some of you want to hear this, but if you are upset by the sexual abuse of young children, just stop listening now. You've got the story, and if you need to stop here, I get it. If you're continuing, well, consider yourself warned. When I was researching this episode, I came across Keith Lentz in another case. You see, Keith and his half-siblings were placed in foster care in the spring of 1987, when Keith, who was born in 1984, was just a toddler. Keith and his siblings were removed from the custody of their parents because of neglect. On May 22, 1987, Cass County made the children temporary wards of the court, pursuant to a neglect petition brought by the Michigan Department of Social Services. The children were placed in the home of foster parents Kendall and Shirley Krause. The children would stay at the Krause home for three years, returning to their parents in late 1990. While in the care of Ben and Shirley Krause, Brian Jacobs, the older half-brother of Keith, was acting out sexually with Keith, 
touching his genitals, climbing into bed with him, even when Keith said stop. This was new behavior, and this was disturbing behavior. An investigation revealed that Dale Krause, the adopted son of Ken and Shirley Krause, had assaulted the boys. Dale was significantly older than Keith's siblings, and he was 10 years older than Keith. In late 1990, around the time of his sixth birthday, Keith revealed that Dale had offered him $2 if Keith performed oral sex on Dale. At the time of this incident, Keith was five and Dale was 15 years old. Keith did as Dale requested, and this was not the first time something like this had happened. The Krause family asked social services to remove the younger children from the home, but social services workers said they would not be removing the children and suggested that the Krauses keep Dale separate from the younger kids. It would be another month before Keith and his siblings were removed from the home, a place they'd lived for three and a half years, and at the time he was sent back to live with his biological family, the Krause family was likely the only home Keith could remember because he was so little when he was placed with them. Unfortunately, the Krause home was not a safe place for him or for his brother to live. In the 90s, Keith's family would file lawsuits against the Krause family, the social services agency and the social workers, as well as others. But the lawsuits really didn't go anywhere, and most of them were dismissed. Now, these incidents... This early childhood sexual abuse in no way diminishes the horror of Keith's actions on that February day in 2010, but I thought it was important to share this aspect of Keith's life when telling the story. You can find source information for this episode as well as additional reading on our website at www.alreadygonepodcast.com. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. <laughs>